but um, to get things started, let's open in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this gathering, for this fellowship, for this group of people. We're very thankful that we can come together and openly worship you. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done, for doing what only you could do and giving us eternal life as we put our faith in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to get things started, I'm going to give you an idea of some of the um, human aspects that come from God. So we're going to start that by reading Psalm 34, 8, where it says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Um, Romans 10, 7. It's a very popular verse that we've all heard before. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or Christ in the ESV. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 18, for thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. So in today's message, we're going to talk about, again, different parts of the body as indicated in the Bible and what they mean. We're going to talk about them um, either from how they are derived from the original language, Hebrew or Greek, or its contextual usage in the Bible, or finally, as its um, meaning as an analogy. When I started doing this, when I had a, an idea to do this, there is an endless amount of information that could go into this message, body parts and different things, and I had to draw the line somewhere, so what you're seeing is that. So the first thing we're going to start out with is hair and what that means, biblically speaking. Hair means scared or standing on end. And I don't know if you've ever seen any, yeah, we've got this with this guy up here, but I don't know if you've ever seen any uh, cartoon images of somebody that's scared. Their hair is always standing on end. I always like, so what's the point? Well, in the original Hebrew, that's what that actually means. In Job, chapter 4, verse 15, it says, A spirit glided past my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. And, and this is a somewhat serious question, but have any of you ever had that happen? I have, unfortunately, in the middle of the night when you're trying to rest, and I'm telling you, it's the most disconcerting thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. They... And I've heard somebody speak to that before, because when it happened to me, and it's happened a few times, it's extremely unpleasant, and it's always my first indication that this is evil. But I heard somebody preach once, and I can't remember who it was or specifically what they were talking about. But that isn't necessarily the case, that it might not be some evil spirit, that it could be God's 
presence coming to you to perhaps deliver a message to you. And the reason that that holds a little bit of validity is because you see in the Bible where people, when they have an apparition of an angel appear, what happens frequently fell on their face scared. Anyway, my experience with this is quite unpleasant and it is scary and I was afraid. Um, this next part we're going to talk about in Luke, where Jesus is speaking of fears. This is from Luke chapter 12. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. After that, having nothing more that they can do, but I warn you um, who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And are not one of them uh, is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are numbered? Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So we have an indication again of hair being relative to fear in the text. Hair can also um, imply strength. So think of Samson, think of Absalom. Um, from Jer uh, Jeremiah chapter 48, for every head is shaved and every beard cut off on the hands of, on all hands are gnashes and around the waist is sackcloth. Absalom at the end of his life, remember what happened with him, his, his power base was uh, captured by a tree and that uh, became the end of him. We watched... Um, the movie Samson a while back, and I don't know, you remember the story from the Bible where he used a jawbone to slay a thousand men, and that also um, has a, that implies power. And um, Isaiah spoke where he said that Jesus had the hair of his beard pulled from his jaw. So again, relating these and bringing these concepts together, think about that. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 3, it says, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. So again, bringing these thoughts together in this particular instance, um, being hairless is related to being powerless. And as I was thinking about this, so, you know, I'm thinking getting older, losing some hair, <laughs> When you think about that, though, there's something to that. Because if you look at the very young and the very old, their power isn't what it is for somebody who is in their middle age, in general terms, and not across the board, but in general terms, that kind of makes sense there as well. So let's move on to eyes. Eyes meaning seen and knowing, seeing is knowing. God knows us because he sees us. In Zechariah 9.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hedrek and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Similarly, in Revelation 4.8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. God being full of eyes, the creatures around the throne. Ezekiel mentions that as well in Ezekiel 1 and in um, chapter 20 as well. The rims full of eyes and the spirit being the part of that. God knows what's going on. He knows what you're doing. He is concerned about you. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. I think we all look forward to that day. In um, Jeremiah, is um, Zedekiah, do you remember um, his end? His end was when um, Nebuchadnezzar gouged his eyes out. Think about that scenario. It could be, again, arguably, that that could be an analogy for not knowing God as well. In the New Testament, in Mark chapter 8, I'll read you a few verses um, related to this. And he, Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked them, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So I've wondered about that before. You know, did Jesus kind of miss the first time? Did he have to kind of do a, a second go? I don't think so. Um, Jesus fixing the blind man so his eyes could see, so he could see and know the truth. In doing so, this was kind of a, like I mentioned, a two-phase sight recovery. And people have wondered about this. And I think from my take on that, that's akin to our journey with God. First, we believe by faith, and in so we see partially as through a hazy glass, but then we will be with Jesus, we will be with him, we will see him, and we will know him. So that's the, it's kind of an already not yet type of scenario. When we're going to be with him, we will be like him, we will see him, we will know him fully. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul mentioning this very um, clearly, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known with God who sees us, with the eyes we mentioned about. Okay, on to ears. Ears meaning hearing and obeying. Ears being analogous to perceiving with the mind, as in understanding truth and knowing. From Romans chapter 10, verse 17, very popular verse. So faith comes with hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, or God, as we mentioned before. In Stephen, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, I believe it is, it says in um, verse 57, 
but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Why they, if you ever examine that relative to the ears and the hearing, and there's even, I don't know if I have that in my message, but in the, I think it's the King James, it says that they gnashed on him with their teeth talking about teeth and we're going to get there in a moment this all has some meaning aside from the obvious and in this specific case when they stopped their ears and they rushed at him why did they do this what did we just say that ears means it means hearing and understanding truth they didn't want to hear what Stephen was saying because he was outlining much of the old testament and what was going on there and they being the power base would not hear of it because they were corrupt. So he was speaking the truth. They stopped their ears. They rushed him, and he met his demise. John writes to the seven churches in Revelation. At the end of each letter, what does he say? He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. On to our next body part, nose. We, we just um, saw the Bible Project video. Everybody raise your hand who likes Bugs Bunny. I expect every hand to be up in here. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I've always been a Bugs Bunny fan, and I actually remember this um, scene and episode very well from years back. But as we just learned, Nose um, specifically means nostrils or anger. So when you see nose a lot of times in the Bible, it actually is specifically from in the Hebrew, it means nostrils, okay? And like we said, um, said on the Bible Project video, the blowing of breath through the nostrils as of those who are enraged. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 22, says, for a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devouring the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. There's a, that word there for anger in the original is nose, but you don't translate it nose because it doesn't have context there. So I have a question for you. What is the first instance in the Bible where God is angry? First instance in the Bible where God is angry. Is it Adam's sin where the Bible says that God was angry? No, it's not. Perhaps it's the flood when God destroyed the earth with water. It seems to me like he was quite upset and quite frustrated and angry. That's not it either. The first instance of God being angry in the Bible is Moses at the burning bush. And you wouldn't necessarily think that. That wouldn't have been my first guess by any means. But that's where it first shows up. And I'll read you this out of Exodus chapter 4. But he said, Moses, Oh, Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not your brother Aaron, the Levite, approaching? So 
I don't know if you remember that situation, but Moses was whining about the commission that God wanted to give him. So God, he had enough, and um, he wasn't going to put up with that. I believe, I'm not sure if I have this up here or not, but I think that Moses five times rejected God when he was doing that. And, you know, I guess <laughs> being a parent, I get that. Five times God had had enough. The next instance in the Bible when God is angry was with the 10th plague against Pharaoh. The 10th plague with Pharaoh. So consider what I just mentioned, that God with his chosen, after five times got angry, but with Pharaoh and the Gentile, so to speak, God's long suffering was at the 10th plague. So what does that tell you? That God is patient with people, that he's patient. He's, um, God's long suffering is twice that of his own people. And what does Peter say about that? Peter says that judgment starts in the house of God. As a believer, you should know better, basically, is what he's talking about. God has compassion for everybody out there who really aren't where they need to be with him. He's waiting on them with us. We're, we're in the fold. We're part of the family, and you should know what's going on when you're in the family. The um, third instance of God's anger was the golden calf incident. With the golden calf incident, it's kind of interesting that, um, remember, Moses went up the mountain, and the um, covenant was just had just occurred when the people agreed to be gods. Moses goes up, they grow weary, then you have the calf incident. So think about that. Think about how that actually was for God and how that made him feel. My analogy for this is, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but anyway, when you get married, you make that covenant. Consummation usually occurs that night, right? What they did was they followed that up by the bride, the people, after saying yes, yes, yes to God, they went and slept with somebody else. Think about that in that context. Read Ezekiel 16, read Ezekiel 23. That's what God thinks about this kind of thing. And he was quite displeased with it, obviously. In Exodus um, 32.10, says God in his um, frustration, now therefore let me alone, he says to Moses, that my wrath may burn hot the nose, burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So what does God do? Does God fry him with his anger? No, he doesn't. Moses was given authority to work with God with people, and he discusses the situation with God, and they um, proceed with his covenant people. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20, verses 27 and 28, it says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, Check this out. I mean, this gives you an idea of how God does have a limit. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke, 
His lips are full of fury. His tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. So again, God does. God is long-suffering, but he has his limits. Our next section, we're going to look at a few things related to the mouth. First, we're going to talk about that specifically, the mouth. Mouth means blowing, a means of blowing, and comes from its root word meaning to blow away or scatter. So when you think about that, it's like, okay, that kind of makes sense, but in Judges, it's exactly that. Judges chapter 7 verse 18 says, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the glory or for the Lord and for Gideon. So when the trumpets were blown, the enemy scattered. Mouth. So what do we have in our mouth? But we have teeth. In certain instances in the Bible, um, it says that with teeth, that that's a containment for one's life. And when I first saw that, I was like, I kind of don't get that. But a good example of this is in Job, in chapter 13, verse 14, where Job says, Why do I take my flesh in my teeth? And the Old, the Old Testament lexicon, essentially dictionary, says that this phrase means he is carrying his flesh or life in his teeth, that he is exposing it to the greatest danger as anything held in the teeth may, may easily drop. So Job says, why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Unfortunately, when you're looking at this and if you find these types of things interesting, some of your translations, you're going to miss things like this. So, for example, the NLT, New Living Translation, which is a comfortable read, I'll say, it says for that verse specifically, I will take my life in my hands and say what I really think. So when you look at a, a paraphrased Bible like that, you're going to miss a lot of what Job is really getting at when he says, um, why should I take my flesh in my teeth? If you want to dig into it, um, the NLT is for more casual reading, for my purposes. What I do is when I'm really studying something and I don't really get what's going on, I will refer to the NLT to help me clear that up. And then I go back into some of the other translations that are a little tighter in their translations to get the more of a meaning for what that is. Next up is tongue. In yeah, purveyor of light and dark. Exactly right. I'll give you a couple of examples of that in Psalm 66, 17. I cried to him with my mouth 
and high praise was on my tongue. That's the good side. Psalm 52.4 gives us the other side where it says, You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So I'm going to proceed into James chapter 3 and read several verses of how he describes the tongue, which is very um, adept. James chapter 3, verses 3 through 10. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder whenever they will, whenever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a very small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. I'm going to pause right there and uh, exegete that a little bit. When I was reading that, going over my notes, I looked at that and it says, you know, every beast, it's, this is a reference back to Genesis. Beast, bird, reptile, sea creature, that covers them all. And it says, can be tamed by mankind. That's the authority given to man over the creatures back in Genesis. But then look what it says in verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. That's just um, quite a remarkable statement when you stop and you ponder that. That we can tame the beasts and all the creatures that God made yet our own tongue is deceitful, deceptive, that we can't tame it. And I can vouch for that probably every day. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Yeah, I can resonate with that big time. Next, we'll move on to flesh. In Hebrew, the word flesh comes from a root word with its meaning of good news and glad tidings. And again, this is another thing when I was poking around looking at this. I would not have thought that flesh would have been good news and glad tidings. I would have thought flesh would have been like, you know, fleshy things which are corrupt and things like that. The flesh against the spirit that Paul talks about and all that. But um, I think what's happening here is we're talking about God in the flesh. And in Luke chapter 2, part of the story that we just visited a month or so ago, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So that is very good news for, the, for God becoming incarnate for us. Next up is compassion. The Hebrew word for compassion comes from the root word womb. Compassion is womb. In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may, may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. That's God remembering his people. And that palm reference we're going to hit here in a few seconds. Behold, I have engraved on you, you on the palms of my hands. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about circumcision. And in the Old Testament Torah, the uncircumcised were considered unclean. I think everybody is familiar with that. When you think of circumcision, you might think of the obvious that I'm not going to talk about, but I am going to refer to Leviticus, um, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 23, which is a little bit of a different take on something that is considered forbidden or uncircumcised. And here is our verse. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden or uncircumcised. Three years it shall be forbidden or uncircumcised to you. It must not be eaten. I don't really know exactly why God would talk about that relative to fruit, but I think this is right, but don't hold me to it. I think if you plant in an orchard and you're bringing up new trees, I think I've heard that for three years you don't want to pick that fruit. You want to let it mature and just do its thing so that will mature and make that tree stronger. If you try to start picking fruit off of it and harvesting it right away, you're going to overburden that tree being young in life. I think that's correct, but don't hold me to it. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. There's our Old Testament verse. Here's our New Testament verse. Obviously, this would be in Romans. Romans out of chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here we're going to proceed to our next area that we mentioned before, and that is palm. Palm meaning curved or hollow, is in the hollow of the hand, the palm. You'll also see this, 
word in the original used to describe uh, the curve of a spoon, branches of the palm tree. And then many times, um, again, the word that is palm is translated as hand from the original into our English texts. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, it says, Behold, I have engraved on you the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Judges 12, 3. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand, crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Palm can also have a meaning to bear one's life in one's hands. That was um, like we talked about for our Job verse. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? So think about what we're doing when we're worshiping God. When we're <clears throat> if we're raising our hands to God, we're lifting up and we're offering our lives to God. It's almost a, a type of surrender of our life to God. And um, remember, too, when Jesus was um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus was going in on the donkey. What were they doing? They were throwing palm branches down before them. That doesn't, at least for me, off, um, in a casual reading, hold a lot of meaning. But when you think about what they were doing relative to this, they were saying, this is our guy. We're putting our trust into him. We're putting our life into him. And I think through that, you get a lot more contextual meaning for what's going on there. John verse, um, chapter 12, verse 13. This is it. So they took out branches of palm trees <clears throat> and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And let's um, consider... Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 mentions um, similar things. There it says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Again, submitting to, to God with their lives. And if you notice, if you've ever read Ezekiel, I believe it's chapters 40 through 48 in his detailed temple description, loaded with palm trees. And I don't think that's because he liked, you know, the beach and so forth. Um, to end this little section, um, Gide remember Gideon and Gideon's 300 men? Excuse me. When... He had a big army, and he kept breaking it down and breaking it down and breaking it down, and finally he ended up with 300. That last 300 was based on the selection of those who were lapping water out of, the, out of their hands versus those who were drinking straight out of the stream. I've heard people say that that might be because if you have your face down, then you're not aware of your surroundings. So you have your face down, and you're taking a drink, and you're not aware of your environment versus if you were doing water and, and drinking it like that. There's probably something to that, but I think 
talking about our hand and palm reference also gives us some credence as to what was going on with that. Our next section is finger and divine efficiency for finger. Divine efficiency. Divine efficiency by which something is made visible to men according to the descriptions that I've seen for finger. If you look at Luke chapter 11, verse 20, it says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, and it continues, that's finger of God. Matthew, in chapter 12, verse 28, has the same exact verse with one exception, and there he says, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons. So, God is working through his spirit, and his finger, in this case, is what we talked about earlier, divine efficiency, something made visible to men. In Exodus 8, 19, Pharaoh's magicians said that the finger of God produced gnats over the land. And uh, also in Exodus, in thirty-one eighteen, that Tablets of stone were written by the finger of God. Okay, let's keep rolling. Next is feet. Feet is humility. And um, ultimately, when you look at the Gospels, the ultimate sign of humility was Jesus washing the dirty feet of his disciples. That's in John chapter 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured out water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that he had wrapped around them. That was Jesus being humbling himself for his disciples. In Psalm um, 110, Psalm 1, um, verse 1, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, I've heard, all heard this before, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus will humble our enemies. Next is heal, continuing down by our, by our foot. Heal. Heal is means to be a supplanter or deceiver or cheater. And we get this from Jacob and Esau. And this is in Genesis 25, 26. It says, afterward, his brother came out and with his hand holding Esau's heel, so was his name called Jacob, specifically meaning supplanter. Both Hill and Jacob come from the root word meaning supplant, Jacob the supplanter, the hill catcher, and if you know anything about where that comes from, the name James is derived from Jacob, also then meaning supplanter, which I did not know that um, until I started doing this study. The next thing we're going to talk about is blood, and blood means life. And we could do a whole series on this, course we don't have time for that i'll touch on a few high points but um 
in the Hebrew, Adam is man, and the Hebrew word dam is blood. To go a little further, the root word for damam means silence still. So when you bring all these things together and you think about it, the blood is in the life. Without the blood, there is no life. There is no man who is alive. You've, you've got nothing there. That's why it says in the Bible, don't eat the blood of animals. It says that both in the Old and New Testaments. Why the blood is in the life. I'll read Leviticus, <clears throat> part of chapter 17. If anyone of the house of Israel or of strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood, and I will cut him off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people, Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover the earth. For the life of every creature is in the blood, its blood is in the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. There's an interesting reference regarding blood in chapter um, 32 of Deuteronomy, and it references the blood of the grape. And when you see that in Deuteronomy, you're like, blood of the grape, I don't kind of get that. But if you look at Revelation, I think it uh, brings that out. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, it says, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stata. That's the original. I'm not going to talk about that at the moment. But the important thing for that is you can't look at that literally and get an idea of what's going on metaphorically. You can get that, that the grape harvest of the earth thrown in the winepress of the wrath of God, that makes a lot of sense when you consider that uh, metaphorically. As a side note to that, when you look at the Bible, whenever you see wheat harvest, think about yourself Think about the Gentiles who are saved. Grape harvest, unbelievers, barley is Israel. You, you have to tap into that and you have to think about that. But once you study it and you look at these things in that context, it opens up a whole new world of biblical meaning and understanding. Revelation chapter 17 says, then one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated 
on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine have become drunk. And then in verse 6, it goes on to say, And the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, was blunk with was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. And if you continue reading on, things don't fare very well for that great prostitute. Our last um, bit of anatomy here is going to be fat. This image is... Cain and Abel, and you can probably suspect which is which. The reason we, we, we know which is which is from Genesis 4, uh, verse 4. It says, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, he had no regard in his offering. And again, I've heard some people talk about that and say, that God had predetermined what, who he was going to accept this from, that he was going to accept Abel's, that he wasn't going to accept Cain's. But I don't really buy that based on what's going on here. When you understand that fat and the fat portion is the choice or best part, that's what Abel did. He gave God his best. It doesn't say that for Cain, though. And Cain goes on to have a bad attitude. Um, later in the Bible. So when you look at this and you see what's going on with these different um, body parts and you, you might think, you know, what's the big deal? Why is that important? I would just say that it's, um, it's interesting to see how God, who is spirit, can actually come and present himself to us in ways to provide a lot of meaning and understanding to us, to his creation, to his, uh, the people who's given authority over the earth, are, uh, us, us flesh beings. So when we look at these things, it provides meaning and better understanding for what's going on with that. And God decided that we were important enough that he was going to take this type of thing in this thought process and he was going to become a man to come down and to help us resolve the issues that we all inherently have as um, fallen beings without him. So Jesus came as a man, had the hair, had the flesh, body of course and all that. And he experienced everything that we experience. And what's the one thing that he experienced about as much as anything else? pain and suffering. He experienced pain and suffering not because of himself. He was sinless, but he became sin. The Bible is very clear about that. He became sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we who put our faith and hope and trust in him might become the salvation and righteousness of God that we could partake into what God would have as being made in his image. That's why that's important. So when you go back and you're reading your Bible and you're looking at this things where, you know, God's burning hot with anger, it all points back to Jesus and what he did for us. 
like the Bible Project says, it's the story, the Bible is the story that ultimately leads to Jesus. Not every verse, not every chapter, but it all ultimately leads to Jesus because God sent him to take care of our sin problem. So we need to trust in him for that. I'm going to finish by reading Titus. I was reading this last night. It just wraps up what I just said much more concisely than, than I could ever do. Titus verses, um, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly, how's that? Through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says it very well, and um, I'm going to end with that. that. That's the icing on the cake right there. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for so much. Thank you for this fellowship that we can get together, that we can, that we can just ponder you, ponder your word, and look at all that you've done for us to bring us back into your fold. You know, your, your great love was exhibited by your sending your one unique son to earth to take our place on a cross since we are, we're sinful on our own. So we need to trust in you. We put our trust in you, Jesus. We're very thankful, God, that you've done what only you could do to make this right. So we want to trust in you, Jesus, and just move forward through your strength and power to live, to be the people that you would have us to be. In Jesus' name we pray.